Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. This is episode number 727 for May 12th, 2022. And I'm your host, Allison Sheridan. One of my pet peeves is podcasters who air reruns. Today, I am that podcaster, but I think I can justify what I'm doing here, so bear with me. On June 1st, 2014, Dr. Marianne Gary made her debut appearance on Chit Chat Across the Pond. In this terrific interview, she explained her research and the research of others in the field of how memories are formed and retrieved. Every time Dr. Gary has come on the show as a self-proclaimed crusher of dreams, these episodes seem to garner the most interest from the most listeners. This seminal episode I've been talking about here with Dr. Gary is the best of the best, and it crushes every dream you've ever had that your memory is flawless, and it's everyone else who is misremembering how things happened. In this episode, she explains the repressed memory fad that started in the 1990s and how damaging this never scientifically validated concept was to many people. She explains how she can actually induce false memories in people at an alarming rate. Now, here's why I'm rerunning it. Eight years ago, Chit Chat Across the Pond was not a standalone podcast. It was actually still embedded inside the Nosilicast, and it was actually Nosilicast episode number 473, so a very long time ago. I've always wanted to be able to point people directly to this interview, but I couldn't because it didn't even have a chapter mark to jump to in the audio, much less be a standalone episode. Not only is it a fabulous interview and one where she mocks me at every turn, I want new listeners to be able to hear it. But even if you have already heard it, it is delightful to listen to again. I asked Marianne to listen and to see whether she'd want to re-record because of maybe changes in the last eight years, but she said it is still great and she loves it just like it is. Now, at the beginning of this interview, I say that she works at the University of Victoria in Wellington, New Zealand. She has since then moved her research lab, and she teaches at the University of Waikato in Hamilton, New Zealand. With all that, I want to say happy birthday to Marianne because I'm releasing this on her actual birthday in New Zealand time. And let's get started with the interview from back in 2014. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Chit Chat Across the Pond. And today it couldn't be less pond-like. Um, I'm actually recording in the same room with Dr. Marianne Gary, Professor and Deputy Dean of the School of Psychology at the University of Victoria in Wellington, New Zealand. But she's actually in the room with me. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? <laughs> well, Marianne decided that it would be stupid to try to record this over Skype in the same house, which is the way I've always done it with two recordings. And uh, yet she convinced me that I should figure out a way to do it in the same room. And uh, luckily, Chris Breen wrote up an article. I'll put a link in the show notes to how to actually do this with two USB mics. And um, with any luck, I think it's actually recording. This is why psychology is good, Allison. Get me outside of my box, you mean? Just It's all about the people and the relationships, Allison. So one of the reasons I named my show cryptically was so that nobody could figure out what my topic was, uh, and that way I could talk about whatever I wanted to. And like I said, um, Dr. Gary is a professor and does research into real-life memory distortions, and she and I have had a lot of topics uh, talks about this, and I find her research absolutely fascinating, and I was hoping to kind of go into this with you guys and let you uh, you learn some really, really interesting stuff. So give us, give us kind of an overview of what this real-life memory distortion thing, what is this, what is this subject about? Well, what I'm really interested in is how it is that people come to remember things that never actually happened to them. What? Whether they're little things. Are memories so, flawed? Yes, indeed. Uh, so I'm really interested in how people remember, say, uh, little aspects of otherwise accurate 
memories, otherwise things that happened to them, or just uh, coming to remember entirely false memories, memories that they basically manufacture out of whole cloth? No, I have to accept that from the beginning that we manufacture memories. You don't have to accept it, just like you don't have to accept death or taxes, but that's, <laughs> that's how it, it works. Happen. Yeah. So what's the basis for that? I mean, we all believe that, um, say, for example, eyewitnesses, if you've got an eyewitness, that's the best testimony you can have of, a, of something that happened, right? Well, we all believe, it, it kind of rolls back to this fundamental belief that we think that memories, are, our identity is wrapped up in our memories. So to challenge our memories challenges really fundamentally who we are. But really, memories originate probably from this real functional basis. So I often talk with my students about saying, what would Fred Flintstone need to have remembered? Would he have needed to remember not to throw this rock at that saber-toothed tiger? Or would he needed to remember basically the gist of that? You know, not to throw rocks at saber-toothed tigers and not to throw things at, at big animals. And, and that's, in fact, the gist of what he would need to remember, right? Because you're not going to see that tiger and that rock again. So memory, an efficient memory, actually works to distill out the essence of our experiences and leave us with a principle. And so just because you get to a courtroom, which is really the area that I'm interested in, just because you get to a courtroom and you raise the stakes and you say, look, now it's really important that you remember, you know, the sort of modern-day equivalent of that rock and that saber-toothed tiger and that, you know, cave person, then it doesn't mean that we can actually do that. Sometimes we can. We think we we can remember that he had on a purple shirt and had blue eyes and brown hair and was six foot two. But what we've we've become able to learn and remember over time wasn't those those specific details. Yeah. So there's a and there's a couple ways this process goes wrong. And the first is, first at the time of an event, let's say a crime. So sometimes you know it's a crime when it's happening, and sometimes you don't. But let's say you know it's let's say you don't know it's a crime at the time, and later the police say. You know, that guy who came into your 7-Eleven store and did whatever, he's actually wanted in five states for, you know, and this is like the Lockerbie bomber was like this, you know, so um, had had some clothes made or purchased some clothes from a tailor. Same thing with Timothy McVeigh. Somebody allegedly came in and rented a a U-Haul truck. And so you catch up with these people months later when nothing to them was out of the ordinary. And then you say, do you recognize this guy or what was so-and-so wearing and what did they say? And so, you know, we take in only a bit of what we need to remember. And we take it in only to do what we need to do and then maybe dump it, you know? So you don't need to, like a waiter, doesn't need to remember for the rest of his life what you ordered last week, you know? And, and so then the second part is, as time goes by, your memory fades quickly. In fact, you lose a lot of information really rapidly. It's called decay. We've known this in science for more than 100 years. And as the same time your memory's decaying, you're gaining access to other information about an experience that you had. And so the combination of those factors means you learn about an event you just had based on what other people are telling you. And okay, so, so, so like if you and I saw a car crash together, I had my immediate memory of what happened, but that decays and starts to get modified because you're telling me what you remember? Absolutely. Okay. And or, or on the television or anytime you think of it, every time you retrieve a memory, you make it fragile in neuro, neurobiological terms, uh, and you have to kind of repack that memory and put it away and you keep sweeping up rubbish over and oh, over really? and over again. Really? So taking it out and, and thinking about it and putting it back actually is changing it. Yes. Yes. So people don't really, I mean, you know, so people really think that, that your memory works like a GoPro, 
right? So you just record it. Absolutely record it, Dump it on a hard drive. There it is. I'll get it later if I want to. And even though we've all had the experience, well, most people have had the experience that they have some conversation with somebody it turns out to be not true, we think that when it really matters, we can turn off that distortion. And we can't. So sometimes eyewitnesses are really inaccurate, and sometimes they're actually, you know, pretty accurate. But there have been really notorious cases of, of, of uh, wrongful convictions that have occurred because people, sometimes multiple people, four or five people will point to somebody and say, that's the guy. And they're flat out wrong. And we learn later through DNA exonerations. Wow. So, so your research is specifically towards how to improve this system for eyewitness or to say, maybe we shouldn't be using eyewitnesses at all. Where does, where do you go with that? It's the research that I do with, with colleagues and some of whom are in the U.S. and some of whom are elsewhere. My graduate students and I, we all do research uh, around different kinds of aspects of memory distortions. And the research I do is typically about how is it that we can come to, how, how is it that eyewitnesses can be wrong and the circumstances under which they can be wrong. And then, and then I also have done work on how is it that we misremember, fundamentally misremember events from our childhood, like that just didn't flat out happen. So you've told me stories about how you've uh, actually induced memories in people that weren't actual events. Can you, can you talk about that? How, how do you do that? Yeah, well, so we can start with the more mundane memory distortions, although they can still have really tragic consequences. So you can do experiments. And the person who pioneered this method is uh, Elizabeth Loftus, who's at the University of California, Irvine. And I worked with Woo-hoo, her. Go, or, go anteaters. Yeah. My alma mater. I know. So I worked, although, who won the basketball championship? Not Irvine. But I anyway, I digress. Not, not on point. So uh, what, what Dr. Loftus did is pioneered this method in the 1970s that is still the, the way to investigate eyewitness memory in a rigorous, controlled, experimental setting. So what would happen is you would come into a laboratory and you would, you know, where you can leave anytime without penalty. So, you know, best case scenario. As the subject. Yes. You don't get to leave. No, I never I, get to I'm leave. the subject. I am okay. held hostage by my university. So, so, uh, so it's the best case scenario memory-wise, yeah? So you come in and you, maybe you watch a simulated crime. And then a little bit of time goes by to allow your memory to drop off, fade away, decay a bit, 15, 20 minutes vastly underestimating what would happen in real life, you know, when the police, you wait around not 15 or 20 minutes for the police to show up. You don't talk to anybody else in these experiments. Then you're introduced to some uh, information after this event. Say, here's what another witness said, for instance, or here's what some other subject said that they saw. And that summary of what you just saw is riddled with some true information and some false information. And then after that... So if that, it were completely false, I would discount it. But since it's got enough truth in it, maybe I start yeah. to pick up those other false right. pieces. Right. So an example might be, how fast was the green car going when it sped past the stop sign and hit the pedestrian? But the car wasn't green. Oh. And later we might ask you, the car was red, let's say. And then later we might ask you, what color was the car, green or red? And people are way more likely to give the false answer once they've been exposed to this misleading information compared to people who were never exposed to this misleading information. And that this effective misinformation is really, really powerful. And, right. and so you might think, well, who cares? Green car, red car, still hit the pedestrian. But suppose the car had sped away from the scene, and now you're trying to find somebody, and all of a sudden this little, little ostensibly irrelevant detail, green car, red car, who cares, now becomes an issue at trial. Because criminal trials can often hinge on things that you would think objectively up front, oh, who cares, trivia. 
Couldn't that also happen and, and very likely happen perhaps uh, by a police officer asking a question a certain yeah. way? Yes. Not, not, and I'm not Unwittingly. suggesting, yeah, I'm not suggesting yeah. uh, maliciously, but I could see, you know, I've heard from one guy it was a green car. So when I say it to you, I'm going to say it's a green car. And, you're, mm-hmm. and, you know, maybe I'm observant enough that I no, no, it was red, but I'm sure I'm missing some other point. Yeah. Or they say, um, did, did he have a mustache? And even that kind of thing is suggestive. So when you're done doing this to people, <laughs> uh, what's their reaction when they find out that they basically said things that weren't true? Well, they, th- they, they actually think it's really interesting. And sometimes people say, yeah, but they're not under stress like a real, like a real crime, you know? And I say, yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> under stress, contrary to what you like, so people think under, under stress, you turn into like super GoPro, but you don't. You turn into really worse crappy GoPro. Really? Yeah. So under stress, your attention narrows and, and, and you take in less of what you might normally take in and you're, I mean, it's complicated, but that's the gist of it. And so you're even worse. So this is the best case scenario in a lab. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we can mislead people about events that happened from their childhood. Oh, this is really good. I love this. Wholesale events. So we we pivoted in the early 90s, mid-90s, from looking at these problems of eyewitnesses, what you might call the mundane, ordinary problems of eyewitnesses. So the kind of thing the Innocence Project has told us sends, they've exonerated over 300 people, three quarters Hmm. of whom have been, as it turns out, sent away for something they didn't do because of somebody's memory problem. So that's the most prominent cause of a faulty, of a wrongful conviction. Right. So we pivoted from that into this wave of issues around uh, the so-called repressed and recovered memories in the late 80s, early 90s. And Washington state became the first state in the country to say, well, you know what, if you just suddenly remember as an adult that you were abused as a child and you know you had repressed that memory, then probably we shouldn't enforce the statute of limitations on you. Oh. We should treat it as though a surgical case in which, say, a doctor left I don't know, uh, a surgical sponge. instrument in, yeah, a sponge in you, and you didn't discover it for 20 years, and you couldn't really figure out why you kept having this stomach pain. So just as we wouldn't say, well, the, you know, the clock should start, we would say the clock should start ticking on your ability to sue that doctor once you find the cause of your dysfunction. Not when they we caused sh- it. Right. We should do the same thing when you recover a repressed memory. Now, all this assumes that, that when you maybe are going to a therapist or reading a book that says, imagine how you might have been abused as a child, because that probably explains your current dysfunction. All of that assumes that what we do is repress memories and then recover them. And there's no evidence for that kind of phenomena. So what there is evidence for is the idea that we can make you think you've suddenly recovered a memory and then, sh- and then have it be absolutely false. And so can- let me make sure I understood yeah. what you just said. Did you say that we don't actually have evidence that there are real rep- repressed memories? Right. There's no scientific, there's no good empirical evidence that memories can be repressed. So we don't know it recover. doesn't exist, but we have no proof well, that it does? Well, it's worse than that, because it actually runs counter to everything we know about memory. What we know about memory is that it drops off really quickly, it decays really quickly, it, it turns to a lot of uh, distortion really quickly. Mm-hmm. But this idea about repressed memory is that you can kind of take something upsetting, like as a defense mechanism, right? You kind of take something upsetting that happened to you when you were younger, and you shove it away in some kind of like toxic waste bin, right? And you bury it so that if I said to you, Allison, did X ever happen to you? You say, nope, and you're not lying. You just can't find it. But like toxic waste, it keeps leaking into your <laughs> everyday behavior. But as like, a result of the question? Yeah, like, and it's like the sponge, so we don't know what's causing it. It's just leaking and leaking, and then one day, 
maybe because of a trusted therapist helps you or because you read a self-help book or whatever, then you suddenly remember, you, un, you, know, you recover, you de-repress this memory and it comes back and it's accurate. See, that's the kicker. It's accurate. And so in the late 80s, in the late 80s, uh, there was a trial, I think in 1989, there was a trial in 1990 in California. So a guy named George Franklin wound up being the first American convicted on the basis of his daughters, his grown daughters, repressed and then recovered memory. That's all in quotation marks, repressed and then recovered memory, where she had remembered that when they were both small children, well, when he was, she was a small child, her father had hit her best friend over the head with a rock. Okay. And she apparently recovered this memory, and he was convicted. But after he was convicted, a whole lot of things started not to add up with so the evidence. The, the friend died from yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. She was died. She died. Um, and, uh, but it turned out that the woman who, you know, the, the grown daughter, didn't say anything that wasn't already in newspaper articles about the facts that she remembered. Some of the facts that she remembered, again, facts in quotes, some of the facts that she remembered uh, just didn't stack up with the, with the evidence that the police had. So he was eventually freed. But not before this wave of this recovered memory, repressed and recovered memory hysteria started sweeping across the United States and and into other countries. So you you said earlier on that, that, and and I I didn't want to stop your role there, but uh, right before you told the story about the the girl getting hit by the rock was, you said that those repressed memories were factual or were accurate. What do you mean by they were accurate? No, they're not accurate. Not there's accurate. no evidence okay. that oh no, there's no evidence that okay. they're accurate. None. Okay. Uh, so, or if you recover a memory, then it then there's pretty good evidence to show that actually you'd never really repress this. You just didn't tell like you told somebody about this five years ago, and then you forget that you knew it, and suddenly you remember it again. Right? It's weird. The way memory works is weird. So what we've done uh, also with. Loftus and some other people and other labs around the world as well, you know, we'll take some adults and we'll suggest to them that something happened to them. Uh, and we I mean, have talk a, about the lost as a child thing. Yeah. The lost. And, in that's the mall. A great well, that, that was, that was Loftus and, and uh, a, a student of hers named Jackie Pickerel did this really nice study. It was the first of its kind to say, well, okay. Uh, is there any way we could get people to have this experience of unrepressing a memory that then they might say, oh my God, I've, I haven't, I, I didn't know about this. Okay. Right. So that okay. way you could say, well, look, I mean, here's an alternate explanation for how these allegedly repressed recovered memories are, are coming to the fore. And so what they did is they uh, talked to the adult child's parents or a fam- another family member. And they said, can you help give us a few events that happened when your child was between the ages of, let's say five and eight, Mm-hmm. Some events you don't talk about all that much, but are you know they should know if they think about it for a while. And also, by the way, we're going to try and suggest to them, implant this memory of them being lost in a shopping mall when they were very little. So can you tell us about a shopping mall near their house where so they might have wandered off sprinkling to? Sprinkling in real facts. Yeah, yeah. So you take oh, this wow. template and you sprinkle in some idiosyncratic details so it becomes easy for them to imagine. Right, right, and so they what, know that mall was there. They, yes, they know they went to that mall as a child. Right, so the so the this kind of template memory was remember when you were between about five or eight years old, and, and you, me, and mom went off to the whatever mall, and you ran off to the pet store to see the puppies like you usually do, and uh, then when we looked for you, you weren't there, and then we heard them read your name over the PA 
that kind of thing, right? Okay. And you okay. were all scared, and a, and a, a lady with old lady with little blue, you know, blue hair had found you and rescued you, and you know, mom said, "Don't ever do that to me again." And so we'd pack it with these idiosyncratic details, and well, I mean, I didn't do that work. And so it turns out that if you ask people about this two or three times over the course of a week or so, twenty-five percent of people come to remember something about this false experience. And then when you say to them, you know what, this actually didn't happen, we're doing an experiment on false memory, then something really interesting happens, which is that they now understand that the event didn't happen, but they can still see it in their head. Ooh. And then... So intellectually, they understand that it's false, but yes. emotionally, it's still yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so the wow. memory, they still have memories, but they don't believe them. So that's kind of interesting. And what you see, too, <laughs> is in some of the, some of the people who know... Uh, that their testimony has helped send innocent people to prison will report the same thing. Like when someone's exonerated, there's a well-known case of a woman um, named Jennifer Thompson who had a, a falsely accused this guy named Ronald Cotton of raping her for a number of hours. And she later came to understand through a DNA exoneration that he wasn't the actual rapist and this other man was. But for a long time, she kept seeing Ronald Cotton's face when she thought about the rape. Wow. And now, I mean, wow. now she's gotten to the point where she sees nobody's face. And there's a really interesting book on this called um, Picking Cotton. It's a fascinating, fascinating hmm. case. So uh, later, after this lost in the mall kind of work, my friends and I got, uh, my colleagues and I got into this idea about using doctored photographs. And you're really, you know, mean to people, these yeah. subjects. Yeah. I mean, well, <laughs> actually, I got into the question because I was interested in the power of of uh, images of photography and also the idea that I mean this is a while back but thinking you know digital Im imaging uh, technology is becoming ubiquitous I mean now it's everywhere sure and so is there and any cost and we can all cost? mess with the photographs right. too is there any cost to do I mean you can take your ex out of a out of a family photo or add your missing parent into your wedding photo <laughs> something like that right and and so is there any memory cost to doing that kind of thing. But oh. also, I, I wanted a bunch of Macs in my lab. So that's <laughs> that's partly why I did it. So I started to do this work a oh, long time ago. because you needed the Macs ago. to do the photo editing? Yeah, I started doing this work a long time ago in the early 90s. And Photoshop, and the, I mean, the technologist wasn't up to it. You'd have to copy and then paste one thing and then go get a cup of coffee <laughs> while it rendered. You know, right, it was right. actually amazing. But we wound up taking people's childhood photos and inserting them into a picture of a hot air balloon. Oh. And then and then all we would do is, like this Lost in the Mall thing, show them a bunch of actual photos from their childhood and this fake one and say, can you tell us about each of these experiences? And there we found just having people look at these photos three times over the course of a week or so, 50% um, of people came to develop some kind of false memory in whole or in part, sometimes these full-blown, crazy, amazing <laughs> false memories. And eventually through various ways of tweaking this method, we got it up to the point where in one study, 78% of people, in another study, about 82% of people. Wow. And when you debrief them, which is what we're ethically obliged to do, uh, and it's... Otherwise you wouldn't... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, no, it's... Well, it's important to do it because, first of all... It's even more interesting. You tell them that you... You know what? We, we did this deception, and here's why we did it. Mm -hmm. And uh, out of... You know, hundreds and thousands of people I've run in many, many, many kinds of memory experiments. I've only ever had one person complain, which is less than the rate of 
mental illness in the population. So, uh, and I don't know why this person complained, but they did. Um, and it, you know, didn't go anywhere. So but do people find it interesting? They find it fascinating. Oh, neat. They find it fascinating because it reveals to them what memory's really like and much more powerful than just explaining to them like I am now, here's what memory's like. Because what sure. you might find is that some of you people who are listening to this might say, oh yeah, well, I personally wouldn't do that even though some of you idiots might. But, <laughs> but in fact, you know, if 82% of people do this kind of thing, then you probably do it too. I mean, everybody oh, yeah. does well, it too. You just don't detect when you're doing it. What it makes me think about is, um, I know you'd be shocked to know that my brothers and I argued a lot as we were growing up. I can't believe anyone argues with you, Allison. (laughs) That would never happen. But my one brother, Grant, and I, I don't think we ever get together that we don't have an argument about the way a story is supposed to be told from our childhood. And he can always win because he's six years older than I am, right? So he can say, well, you were a little kid. he plays that card. Yeah, he plays that card every single time. And what, what this tells me is that we're probably both telling the story wrong. Right? Neither one of us is, is accurately capturing what, what went on. And a, and a lot of my memories are memories that my mother told me. And you, you were talking about that a little bit earlier today, is, is where we get memories from our parents. Right. So uh, children are not born knowing how to remember ex- their experiences. So, in fact, when we're quite young, we don't really have this ability to think along the lines of, me and my identity, and I'm going to mentally project myself into the future and think about, is Social Security going to be around when I retire now that I'm five? You know? <laughs> and we also don't really, as little children, know how to tell a story or think in the ways of telling a story, the story of our experiences. And we learn how to do that from our parents. And so what you'll see with parents is they'll talk to their young children and say things like, so... We went to the zoo this morning, and you and you played with the tiger. Well, that's probably not a good example. <laughs> the stuff that tiger. would be a bad parent. <laughs> yeah, the stuff tiger. <laughs> yeah, remember I saw you to take the, to see the tiger, uh, and right, and so and then and then what did we do afterwards? That's right, we had a pretzel, and then what did we do after that? Yes, we took the bus, and, and so what you see is the parent explaining to the child the sequence of events in a way that's kind of story-like. And oh, and that so teaches us how to build the story? It teaches us how to build the story as children. And it also means that our parents are actually the ones who carry around our memories for us until we're able to actually hold on to our own memories. So our parents are, for a long time, the repository of our memories, which means that the memories that you have of your childhood are, and actually the memories you have anytime, are just a sample, right? So that may or may not be how it happened, or it may be how it mm. happened in part, but not in whole. Because you but never I'm take so everything. sure I'm right when I'm arguing I know, with you about the way it happened. I know. We all are. But you especially, <laughs> Allison. <laughs> so how do, you, how do you recruit people to be subjects of your vicious little experiments? <laughs> uh, well, we use uh, most, most psychology departments around the world have a pool of, of uh, students who sign up. Okay. To be in experiments, or we also sometimes use Amazon's Mechanical Turk. That's another thing a lot of places oh. use. So some experiments we can Let, run. Let's. let's I, I want to explain what uh, the Mechanical Turk is for anybody who doesn't doesn't know. The Mechanical Turk is a way of farming your uh, some problem you need to have solved out to people who will, uh, for pennies a day or pennies a, an, an experiment, will will answer questions for you. And the, the way I've used seen it done is. Um, where people are trying to do um, 
oh, there was there was a guy who was it? It was lost. A plane was lost, and uh, in in the uh, Rocky Mountain somewhere, mm. and they were trying to find this guy. And so through the Mechanical Turk, you could go and try to help. Just look at these photographs and say, is there anything that looks like this in this photograph? Oh, right. So instead of using pattern recognition, they were using people to look at it because we would be better at recognizing those patterns. Right. It's things and, that uh, computers can't do well. Right, right. And in that example, that was a case of where nobody was being paid to do it. But right now, they, I, I've seen where you can go to look at photos and it'll say, is there a, picture, is there a goat in this photo? You know, is there a stop sign in this photo? Stop right. sign would probably be stupid because mechan- you could do that electronically. But it, that's my understanding of what Mechanical Turk is. Right. How do you use that? Well, um, I and other experimental psychologists will often put, we'll run an experiment online. So if I'm interested in uh, how you remember experiences, then I might have an experiment where you come into a laboratory at my campus and I do all this stuff by showing you a video on, your, on a computer, and then maybe you read something on a computer, I'm measuring your response time, whatever, and then I ask you questions about it, just like I told you earlier. But I can t- put the same thing up on a web page. Right? Really? So okay. we can pipe that video through a private YouTube channel. We can have a delay go by while we ask you to do some puzzles, you know, for timed. And then after 20 minutes or so, you read the narrative. We time your response to that. So are, have, are the people responding in text? Are they typing the answers? They're typing they're... and clicking. And, and what we have to do since we're not there is we ask you to do certain things to give us some better experimental control. And then mm. at the end, we say, did you do these things? Like, for instance, we don't want people getting up in the middle of an experiment to go make a cup of coffee. Right. Right? Or right. just to stop to chat with their friend. We don't want them to be doing the experiment in a noisy environment. Now, to some extent, because of the way randomization works... You could be in a group that gets the misleading information and another group that doesn't in a particular way, right? And then the people, there should be equal numbers, thanks to the magic of randomization, there should be equal numbers of people who are compliant and non-compliant with your instructions in both groups. Okay, so the the rate... It should be the same, but but it's noise, right? I mean, it's the signal-to-noise thing, so... We want to minimize the noise that we get in. And at the end, we say, you know what, we're going to pay you anyway, but we really need to know, did you really, really do what we asked you to do? <laughs> and on that basis, if you say no, we'll, we'll probably throw you out. I mean, it depends whether or not your data look different from other people's. Sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't. So that's kind of interesting. And, and yeah. yeah, that's an interesting use of the, the wisdom of crowds where you don't actually have to bring somebody in. Oh, does it right. matter at all? The Well, like we talked about doing this recording today in the room where we can actually see each other and judge each other's reaction, our faces, that sort of thing. Um, does that matter? Does that change the experiment for you when you can't see those people? Well, there's some things you can't do online, right? There's just some things that you actually would need to be in person with. So it would be really hard for me to do that experiment with photos. Because somehow I'd have to work with you, and you don't know who anybody is a mechanical Turk. So that's oh, that's one yeah, problem, yeah. Right? right? And that's right. the childhood that, photo thing wouldn't work. Yeah, it'd be too. You couldn't do that. Um, I have been. I actually was suspicious, you know, when we first started using it, thinking, "Oh, it's going to look like rubbish." But I'm actually astonished at the extent to which the data that we get from mechanical Turk look like the data we get from people who are predominantly 18 to 20 years old in New Zealand. And what's also interesting to me is we collect data on Mechanical Turk on people who are in the United States. And they range in age from, say, 18 to their 70s. They have a 
Oh, that's so now you've actually taken out the age factor. If that's and the education factor, all kinds of educational experience, all kinds of political or affiliations, all kinds of geographic orientations. Well, within the United States, um, very they're very different from people who are just you know New Zealand kids who are like eighteen, nineteen, twenty years old. And it's very easy for people to turn around and say, blah, how can you generalize from a bunch of 18 or 19 or 20-year-old New Zealand kids (laughs) kids all the way to people in general? And the answer is, that's how. I mean, it just shows you that some things are universal. Yeah, you've you've taken out socioeconomic status as well, because I I would presume that most people uh, who are working Mechanical Turk are probably not wealthy business owners, that they tend to be people who are making small amounts of money by doing a lot of experiments, right? Well, there is actually a fascinating uh, fascinating set of circumstances on that front with Mechanical Turk, because there are people who, we have people who are surgeons, when we ask them their... Really? Occupations, yeah. Is this Surgeons or engineers, you know, all kinds of... Yeah. Well, what they do is they... Maybe they're going to eat lunch and they just want to play around on their computer and they feel better doing something a Mechanical Turk for 20 minutes than they do sucking, so, going down a sinkhole on Facebook, right? Oh, so they wow. do that just for the intrinsic reward. And so the money's not a factor to them. But then there are other people who... And this is, this is a growing number of these people, sadly, who are out of work and do things on Mechanical Turk to make money. But Mechanical That's Turk was set up to not, did. it wasn't exactly set up to do that kind of thing. And and sometimes I get people complaining about, in fact, I just got something when I got to your house earlier, I got somebody complaining to me about how can you pay me a dollar to do something for 45 minutes because that's sub-third world and blah, blah, blah. And it's it's because it wasn't set up to be that to do that kind of thing, right? And, right, and right. And so... I mean, I could write back and say, don't do it. But that <laughs> seems needlessly provocative even for me, although you probably would write back and I say, I would immediately say, yeah, you chose exactly. it. I'm, I'm going to forward those messages to you. <laughs> I'll please, answer Please you. see Allison. click. Yeah. Uh, so, but in any case, you get this fascinating and diverse range of people. Huh. Orders of magnitude yeah, you don't more actually diverse know than... they're in the United States. You know they have IP addresses originating in the United right. States. Right, and sometimes, well, the, and the vast majority of people are in the United States, although that's one of the things we ask them at the end, are you really in the United States? Often, or something like that. Where are you actually from, or is English your first language? And then, hmm. we're going to pay you anyway, don't worry. So, well, yeah, some people are VPNing, and you can either. tell who's VPNing in, because their English isn't up to scratch, or... Uh, yeah. So, uh, and for some experiments, that kind of thing wouldn't matter. But for me, where I'm interested in the effect of the written word on your memory, oh, right, right, it does matter. Right. Yeah. I, I'm I'm loving the fact that people enjoy these experiments after they find out that you mess with them. That that's because I think I think I would love that. I'm I'm not naive enough to think I wouldn't be in the 78% who would totally believe what you said. Mm. Um, and, I, and I think I'd, I'd love to know that. In fact, do you do that to me a lot when we're talking? Yeah, just, I'm actually not here right now. Just <laughs> <laughs> making stuff up all the time, right? What, uh, so where are you going next with this kind of research? Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, one of the things that I pl- I've played around recently is looking at how if I pair various, let's say you read a series of statements, just trivia, science facts, right? True and false science facts. So facts sometimes in air quotes and facts sometimes real facts. Like, here's one. Um, macadamia nuts are descended from the same evolutionary family as peaches. Do you know if that's true or false? No, I don't know. No. Well, I don't remember anymore either because I have so many of these. I can't, I can't tell anymore. 
So, Reality is completely distorted. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, let's say that you see statements like this, and some of them are true and some of them are false. And sometimes that statement appears with a photo of a picture of macadamia nuts, let's say. So the photo is what a lawyer would call non-probative. It doesn't actually give you enough information to tell if the statement is true or false. Because it didn't say have a picture of the two with, you know, pointing out things that are similar. It was just a picture of macadamia nuts. Yeah, just a picture of macadamia nuts. So what we find is that if we show you these statements for a few seconds and ask you, tell us which ones are true and which ones are false, then if the statement appears with a photograph, again, a photograph that doesn't actually give you the right answer, you think it's true. Wow. So we think this is maybe one of the root causes of misconceptions. Like you can think of misconceptions in textbooks, uh, that they appear with diagrams and photos about how they're, how, you know, here's how the Earth's molten mantle or whatever it is, and, it, you know, things that aren't true. Uh, and photographs lull people into thinking, oh, I understand that statement better. And we wind up confusing understanding with truth. My my favorite example of that was there was a, a very unfortunate word wrap in, um, I think it was in Sky and Telescope magazine, actually. It, it said, um, on such and such a date, the moon will be as, no, uh, Mars would be as close to the earth as the, as the moon is to the naked eye or will look as close, or something mm -hmm. like that. But basically what it was saying was that if and the, the second line that was in the word wrap with a photo in between was with a 2,000-power telescope. You know, oh, it was, right. It was like, if you looked at the moon with the naked eye and you looked at Mars through this giant telescope, they would look about the same. And I had people, a lawyer, trying to convince me that the moon would be as big to the naked eye as the, as the moon. And I, I tried to draw like some, you know, here's how close the moon is, here far away Mari is. Do you know about tides? Don't you think we'd be noticing something by then? But he was 100% certain because it had been Sky and Telescope magazine and it had this photo with it. He was positive that this was true yeah. and it had no logic that he could apply to And the photo doesn't it. prove it. Yeah, and so now you've got the added layer of authority. So it was, it was kind of cool. And so what we did is... Um, we published this paper and then wrote a, the, the journal wanted to do a press release. And we called the, we said that we had found the cause of truthiness, you know. Stephen oh, Colbert's yes, talk truthiness. about truthiness. Yeah. And so uh, people started well, posting this. Well, you, so you actually came up with the term truthiness. No, Stephen Colbert did. Stephen Colbert did. did. Okay. Yeah. But, but he talked about your paper. He did. Um, and so we, well, we just thought, Let's call it truthiness, because we could come up with a name that nobody pays attention to, but let's just call it truthiness. And then people started posting it on his Facebook page. And then one night, it was on his show. Uh, <laughs> and truthiness is, the, is fake truth. Truthiness is a feeling of truth that comes from the gut, not books. Okay. <laughs> or not facts yeah. or knowledge. So he said something like, I know scientists have think they've discovered the cause of truthiness, but you can't prove truthiness with science. You can only prove truthiness with more truthiness. <laughs> a process he called truthinessiness. <laughs> Which is kind of profound, actually. It is kind of profound. So that was actually one of my, the highest moments of my career, I think, being on Colbert. <laughs> most, most scientists don't wind up on Colbert. That's awesome. Yeah, we gotta it was rem awesome. Remind me to put a link in the show notes for that I so will. people can see him say that. So, has repressed memory as a um, as a method of convicting people in crimes has that gone out of vogue because of this research? Well, I mean, not because of my research, but in part because of a lot of research. Um, it's it's far less common than it used to be. Uh, 
like where I live in New Zealand, there's no statute of limitations on these historical sex cases. So you don't have to say, oh, you know what, I didn't think about this for a while and now I suddenly remembered it. You just have to say, I didn't feel like coming forward with it for whatever reason. And you can see that that would happen in a lot of cases. Uh, so it means that if you had suddenly remembered an experience, you don't have to say that you suddenly remembered an experience. You just come forward with the claim. Hmm. Uh, but even if those claims are actually true, even if the, the event really did happen, it's possible, in fact, I would say probable, that as time goes by, there's more and more distortions creeping into that person's memory. And so now it's 20, 30 years later, and you're going to go to court. Maybe you're pointing to the wrong person, you know, hmm. and saying that's the guy. Or maybe you're talking about uh, a, a different set of circumstances, and you remember it as worse than it actually was. There's some evidence coming out now that um, the severity of symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder is correlated with uh, the degree of memory distortions you have about an experience. So the worse you remember an experience as being, and it's, and it's a distortion, the more memory distortion, I mean, sorry, the more post-traumatic stress disorder you have. Hmm. So it doesn't matter then what really happened in that event. It, it matters how you remember that event now. Huh. That's your reality, even right. though it's not, from a court's point of view, it's not reality. <laughs> it's, but it's your reality. Right. So one is how you get treated, and, and one is what happens in a court. What about eyewitness testimony in general, though? It sounds like that that's pretty su suspect. Well, a lot of eyewitness testimony can be felt. It depends on the situation. You know, it's like you can have eyewitnesses who are, you know, very accurate, and they're accurate about what they need to be accurate about. So a, an eyewitness who knows somebody who says, I know this guy. I saw him break this window or whatever and steal mm -hmm. this stuff. Or I saw him punch this other guy in the head. Yeah. So you know the guy. So you're probably making a correct identification. Okay. Okay. Now, maybe all things happen so fast that maybe he didn't actually throw the punch or maybe you misremember that aspect. But probably you know the guy, so you're going to recognize him. Sure. You sure. know, that, that kind Th of that's thing. That's completely different. Yeah. Right. And so eyewitnesses can be very confident and be very wrong, and eyewitnesses can be very confident and be very right, and it can run the whole spectrum. And the thing is, I, as a scientist, because I do experiments, can know who's who. But in a court, <laughs> you can't. Yeah, yeah. Have you found any uh, differences in uh, results based on gender? Um, not anything reliable. Well, you can imagine a scenario in which the crime has to do with, oh, I don't know, uh, some manly type thing. Let's just go all in on the gender well, stereotyping, saying, like well, cars, right? <laughs> well, I'm saying on the experiments that you guys have done. No, not, not reliably that I've done, okay. no. But I don't so, think I use the kind of materials that would lend themselves to that kind of thing. I have found that couples, if you, if you have couples watch a crime, watch one of these crimes in an experiment and then talk about it, and you compare what happens to their memories over time, how they distort. The woman's memory's better, Right. <laughs> not always um, but I'm sure yours would be Allison uh, compared to how strange what happens with strangers when they talk together the couples are more likely to distort each other's memories now I oh because there, because there's trust maybe between them yeah, that, that, yeah. Oh, so I, in, oh, in relationships whether it's a work relationship or a romantic relationship or a family whatever there are these uh, divisions of memory labor Right. Right. So that. Oh, absolutely. So Steve is probably in charge of remembering to do something, and you're probably in charge of remembering to do some other thing. Right. Right. And 
that's this turf you don't cross, right? Sure, so, sure. Yeah. And, and, and it baffles me that he remembers certain things that I would, well, I totally would have forgotten to get that done. Right. So if there's things that he normally does, because it's his job to remember certain things, then, you know, there's the idea that either he's more accurate than you are about that thing, or if he says to you, no, it's this, then you'd be more likely to, to think, okay. And then in the moment, you might think, well, I'm capitulating because this is your job. But later, maybe even a couple of days later, that's your memory now. Right, right, right. And you would right. never oh. say, I got that from Steve. You would own it. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, but no no direct uh, big differences in what percentage of, of women versus men uh, will swear that they were on that balloon ride as a child no. or lost in the mall or anything like no. that. No. Interesting. No. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Well, this has been really cool. I actually have no idea how long we're going. We've been going. Uh, I'm using the new Garage Band, and according to it, we've been going 1,259 somethings. So that's a lot um, of somethings. I know. I, I'm going to assume this is about right. I uh, I really appreciate you coming in to talk to us. I hope we can get some links to some of the books you talked about. I I just I could talk to you about this for hours. I, I well, well, let's keep going, Allison. <laughs> just go hours and hours. Well, uh, if uh, people wanted to tweet you, how would they get a hold of you? Uh, Doctor Lambchop. Dr. Lambchop. That's perfect. Well, thanks again for coming in with us. Thank you. Well, I hope you found this discussion with Dr. Gary as thought-provoking as all of us did back in 2014, and as I did when I just listened to it again. If you'd like to talk to Marianne and the rest of the community about how your memory is better than Marianne says, please join our community over at podfeet.com slash slack. Thanks for listening, and stay subscribed.